Well, welcome to Crossroads Live Online. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And I want to say happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. I want to say a special happy Father's Day to my dad. Uh, I sent you some great pork rubs so that you can have an awesome uh, smoked pork butt today for your Father's Day. All right. I know that you watch every week. And so uh, I am happy to be able to do that and to say to my dad, I love you. I thank you for all that you do uh, in my life. Well, today we are finishing up uh, our series called Finding Jesus. And if this is your first time with us, you're kind of coming into the tail end of really like a movie here. Uh, This is week six of a six-week series. Uh, But don't fear, you can go online and you can catch up at CrossroadsABC.com, download our app, you can find the messages uh, there. And if you haven't uh, watched any of those messages, I would encourage you to do that. Now, before I jump in today's message, I just want to take a moment to go back over the last five weeks just to highlight where we've been and what we've discovered uh, in doing so to help us where we're going to be today. And so in this series of Finding Jesus, we began kind of week one with this idea that everyone is invited to follow Jesus. That Jesus' first invitation is an invitation to everyone, and it's simply to come and see. He says, would you just come come and see? Experience life with me. No commitment here. You don't have to believe everything. You don't even have to have your whole life together. That the first step really in finding Jesus is simply come and see. Come and experience me. That you, that you explore, find out for yourself, ask questions, even ask the hard questions like we're going to do today. And then we got to week two, and, and we saw that it's, it's good that we come and see. And once we begin to come and see and experience life with Jesus, that, that we realize that we're broken, that every single one of us are broken because of our sin. And that once we see that brokenness inside us, that, that there's this opportunity for us to believe or to trust in Jesus, to trust in a relationship with Jesus where we ultimately find healing for that brokenness. And then in week three, we we saw that once we believe, once we believe in Jesus, that God's call on our life is to be like Jesus. It's to be like Jesus. That we first step is to come and see, and then we see and believe, and then we believe and we be. That we are to become like Jesus. That once we find Jesus, that that the great news is, is that we start to be like him, which leads to a question that every single one of us asks. And that question is, is what does it look like to be like Jesus? Like if I'm really going to follow Jesus, if I find Jesus, if I'm on this journey and I find Jesus, I believe in him, and now the calling of my life is to be like Jesus, what does that look like? What does that look like? And so the next last couple of weeks, we'd really discovered what does it look like to be like Jesus? And we found out, one, that to be like Jesus means that we invite others to follow Jesus. But then, two, the distinguishing mark of a believer's life is joy. It's joy. That joy isn't just like icing on the cake of faith, but that joy is actually this distinguishing mark of us as believers, that we're to live our entire lives rejoicing and full of joy in this life. And so in just those few moments, that's kind of the wrap on this whole series. And like I said, if you missed any of those, I'd encourage you to go back, check them out online, because those five are not just fundamental to really this series, but are actually fundamental to the way that we understand life in Jesus, what it means to find Jesus. Now, I do all of that to really lead us into this final message, that where we're going today is we're going to look at a passage where where God makes this extraordinary call in Micah chapter 6 to every single person who believes in God and specifically in Jesus. And over the last few weeks, I I can't help but to think that that this moment and this passage that we're looking at today is is God-orchestrated, is God-ordained. Let me explain. 
that originally when we sat down and planned out this series a couple of months ago, we decided that this would be a five-week series. We thought it would be really cool to kind of end this Finding Jesus series with joy. Like on a high mark, we would send people out and we would just, like it would just be there. It would, that would be like the culmination of the series. But kind of in the middle of May, we got together as a teaching team, Pastor Tim and Pastor Chris and myself, and we were sitting there really planning the series in advance, and I just made comment that, that I really felt like we needed a sixth week to the series, that, that five weeks was good, but, but I just really felt that we needed to preach on Micah chapter 6, verse 8. There was just something in me that resonated with that. And so we had a short conversation, and we all agreed that that would be a fitting conclusion. And when we made that decision, none of us knew, none of us could have known that just six days later, the death of George Floyd would set off a national crisis concerning justice. And so listen, as we wade into this today, this is a bit of a minefield. The national blood pressure is an all-time high, that in my lifetime I've never known it to be higher. And the reality is, is that we as a church, as Crossroads Church, are not just made up of, of far left or far right politically, but that we're a church that really lives in the messy middle. And that my goal today, as we look at, at Micah chapter 6, verse 8, is, is to try not to be political. I, I don't intend to be political, but simply to open up the scriptures, to look, to really dive in deep to this extraordinary call that God makes on every single person who calls upon him. That this is the way that we're to live when we found Jesus. And so my goal of today is to simply do that, is to simply look at the scriptures and then make an application of how we're to live this out in light of, of what's going on in our national headlines. And so before we go any further, what I want to do is I just want to pause as we get ready to walk into these waters, all right? So if you would just bow with me and pray. Father, we come to you. And God, we are all very much aware of what's going on in our world. Lord, not only the pandemic that continues to reshape our lives, but Lord, also, Lord, the racial tension that has reached an all-time high. And Lord, as we wade into this as a church, Lord, um, we do so looking for your voice. God, that throughout these last couple of months, Lord, as the world has continued to shift around us, Lord, none of us were prepared for any of this. And Lord, our goal week in and week out, is simply to come to the scriptures, Lord, and to see how you're speaking to us in this moment in time right now. And so, Lord, with, with what's going on in our world, within our nation, even within our city, uh, Lord, we need your voice. We need your words. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would speak to us clearly. It's, it's in your son's name that I pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, when it comes to Micah 6, 8, what we have in Micah is the summary statement in all of the Bible how God wants his people to live. That this famous verse is written by a prophet named Micah. Micah's a guy. He's a prophet. And the prophet's roles within Scripture were really to call Israel back. That Israel was rescued by God from, uh, as a slave nation, really, in Egypt. They were rescued from that, and they set up their own nation. They really became a great nation with kings, and they became kind of their greatest under, the, under King Solomon. And for all of King Solomon's good, really what King Solomon did was usher in some pretty wicked and evil things. And that Israel, from that point forward, really lived out as a nation wickedness and evil almost all of their days. And so the prophet's role time and time again was to go to the nation and to say, you're walking in wickedness, you're walking in evil, come back to God. God's wanting you to come back. He's waiting for you to come back. And it was this great call to come back to God. Well, in this point in Israel's history, they're walking in deep wickedness, 
in, de- in deep evil. And God uses this prophet Micah to speak to Israel. And what we have in Micah chapter 6 is really Micah setting up this conversation between God and the nation of Israel. And what God is doing in the conversation is that he's making his case towards the people of Israel that they are walking in disobedience, that they're evil, that they're wicked, that these things are going on uh, in their midst. And then we have Israel's response. That Israel responds to God really in a series of questions, almost mockingly so. And the first question that, that Israel brings to God is they ask him, what shall I come to the Lord with? Like, God, we're your people. What should we bring to you? What do you want from us? I'm a person of God. God, what do you want from me? That's the first question. And then what follows is a series of questions where they go, well, how about burnt offerings? God, is burnt offerings of animals, is that enough to please you? Is that enough to satisfy you? And then they take it a step further and they go, what about a thousand rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Would that be enough to please you, God? Is that what you want? And then they take it even higher and they say, God, what about sacrificing our firstborn son? Would that be enough for you, they wonder? These questions that, that get considerably higher, showing the wickedness of their heart. And then we get into verse 8, and God answers. And Micah writes these words He has told you, O man, what is good. In other words, Israel, you should have already known the answer to your question, that you should have already known what the answer to this was, that God doesn't need any of that stuff. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He's not looking for that. He has told you what is good. And here's the powerful words that he writes And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, to understand this verse, we have to go all the way back to the first pages of the Bible. We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where we find God creating humanity, and he sets the humans apart from the rest of all the other creatures as image bearers of God. Now, if you've never heard of that phrase before, image bearers of God, just know that it has a ton of meaning into it. It's a full, full phrase. And we're going to look at two in light of our conversation today. That when we talk about being an image bearer of God, first we have to realize that it speaks to the biblical reality that every single one of us are representatives of God, that we represent God on this earth as we rule this earth according to what he says is good and evil. That's the first of what it means to be an image bearer of God. But it also means, secondly, that all humans are created before God and have the right that we are equal, that we are equal, and we have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness as his image bearer. Now, when we think of those two things, that that we're created equal as humans and that we should be treated with, with dignity and fairness and that we are representatives of God on this earth to carry out what he says is good, When we sit back and think of that, we go, man, that would be like a world that would be really great. That would be a really awesome world to be a part of. Yet when we think of that, almost immediately, that doesn't match up to the world that we experience. The world that we experience doesn't work like that. It doesn't doesn't go that way. And the reason that it doesn't work like that is because in our sin, we are constantly redefining what good and evil is. Specifically, for our own advantage at the expense of others. And so when we read the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, we see this happening not just at a personal level or a family level, but we see this happening across civilizations, that we see whole civilizations are creating injustice, especially towards those who were most vulnerable 
in their society. And so as you open the pages of Scripture, it doesn't take you very long to figure out that humanity after creation is ultimately a huge mess. And so God puts together this plan, and he goes to this man named Abraham. This is Genesis chapter 12. He goes to Abraham, and he goes, I'm going to start something new with you that I'm going to create this new community through your family and that ultimately your family is going to become a great nation and that this great nation, this new community, will be known for the way that they walk with me because of their righteousness. Because of their righteousness. Now here's the rub for us when it comes to us as kind of Western thinkers. That when we see or hear the word righteousness, almost immediately we think of like personal or private morality. Like, don't cheat on your taxes. Don't tell lies. Be diligent in your Bible study. You know, sexual purity. All of those are good things, by the way. But when the Bible uses the word righteous, it's a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is, uh, is uh, tzedek, tzedekah is the Hebrew word. Now, I'm going to use these Hebrew phrases not to, not to, like, show off that I'm a Hebrew scholar. You just saw that I totally screwed up that word. But when it comes to the Hebrew words, it helps us understand the meaning. So when it comes to tzedekah, that word meaning righteous, what it is is the ethical standard that refers to right relationship between people. It's the day-to-day living in which a person conducts all of their life, all of their life, and all of their relationships with fairness, generosity, and equality. That's tzedekah. In other words, it's about treating people as image bearers, image bearers of God with the dignity that they deserve. So all of that as the background brings us up into Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And the way that this new community is to live out this righteousness is to walk humbly with God, being attentive to the things that he desires and the things he loves, which Micah tells us is doing justice and loving kindness. Now, when we see these two words together, almost immediately what we think is, is that these are opposite words, right? That you can do justice or you can love kindness. But you can't do kindness and you can't be just in the same way. That's kind of the way that we think of it. That it's like these opposite ends of the spectrum. Yet the reality is, is that when we read the Bible, with the, we see that these words aren't opposite, but these are actually intimately connected. Doing justice and loving kindness. Now, the word kindness in Hebrew is kased, kased. And it simply means God's mercy, his unconditional grace, his compassion on us. And the word justice is the Hebrew word mishpat. And mishpat can refer to retributive justice, that, that type of justice that when you steal something, you get punished. But more often than not, In fact, the vast majority of times that mishpat is used in the Old Testament, over 200 times, it's used to speak of restorative justice, where you would actually seek out the vulnerable and help them. Now, we see this all throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again. We see in the Old Testament that that mishpat describes taking up the care and the cause of widows and orphans and immigrants and the poor. In fact, as we read through the Old Testament, we see those four time and time again. Uh, One of those places is in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. Let me just read these words to you. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, that's mishpat, show kindness, that's kased, and mercy to one another. So we're to show, we're we're to render true judgment, we're to show kindness, 
and we're to be merciful to one another. To which we go, well, what does that look like? Israel would have had the same question. What does it look like to live that out? Verse 10, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another, that is, against those who are image bearers of Christ in your heart. Now, when we read this and we look at those four, we go, why do those four get mentioned time and time again? Why is it always about the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor? Why are those the ones that get mentioned so much in the Old Testament? Well, the reason is because those four in an ancient Near East agricultural society had no social power, that they were the vulnerable. And the mishpat, the justness of a culture, according to the Bible, was evaluated by how well it treated the vulnerable. That any neglect shown to image bearers of God was not just a, like, was not just a lack of mercy, but was actually a total violation of God's justice. Total violation. That God loves and defends those who are in the least economic and least social power, And the implication throughout the Old Testament is so should his people. That's what it means to do justice and to love kindness. So if we are understanding Micah 6, 8 right, what we see is that loving kindness is the motive. It's the why. And doing justice is the action. That we're motivated because of God's mercy and his grace that he's shown us. And it results in action or justice in this world. So we fast forward to the life of Jesus, and all of a sudden, as we're reading the life of Jesus, we see the echoes of Micah 6, 8 in his life. That one day in in Matthew chapter 11, some guys come up to Jesus, and they're like, are you really, like, are are you the real deal? Like, are you the Savior? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? And Jesus answers them this way in Matthew chapter 11. He says, go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sights, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That when we look at this passage and what we know of of first century Judaism, that, that in this culture it was the blind, the lame, the lepers, and the poor who were the most vulnerable in society. That the very same care for the vulnerable that we see throughout the Old Testament is demonstrated in Jesus' life. That it's the character of God's heart on display for all people to see in Jesus. And as Jesus goes about preaching the good news of his coming, he also takes time to show a particular interest in the vulnerable in that culture during that day. Listen, as we read through the Gospels, and we look at the life of Jesus, we see Jesus command his disciples to give to the poor. That he came alongside lepers. That he ate with the socially ostracized. That he came alongside an immoral woman who was actually caught in the act of adultery. And he showed her great respect. That time and time again, we we see that Jesus refuses, he refuses to go along with the racism of his culture during that day. That he used a hated Samaritan as the hero of his greatest teaching that he ever gave. That when Jesus was confronted with the Jews, he had the audacity to say that God actually loved Gentiles. And they wanted to kill him for it. That throughout Jesus' life, he demonstrates time and time again in every way what it meant to do justice 
to love kindness, and to live with righteousness. And then he looks at the disciples. He looks at all of his disciples. And he says, I want you to go and do the same. Go and do the same. And we start to see that that his genuine disciples, that they go and they create a new community that we call the church. And that the church does not exclude the poor. And it does not exclude members from from other races. and And it does not exclude the powerless. In fact, it works in society to bring about flourishing for everyone. See, for Jesus, social justice was not a means of salvation. For Jesus, it was a sign that you already had salvation. It was the sign that you had already found Jesus. So this extraordinary call on our lives to do justice to love kindness, walking humbly with God, meets us in this most unique moment in history where the racial tensions are not just engulfing our city and our nation, but the entire world. And my fear over these last couple of weeks as I've, as I've watched all of this take place is that what's being lost in the, in the political ising, I don't even know if that's a word, but the, the politicalness of all of this, the violence that is erupted, is our call as disciples of Jesus to stand against the systemic evils of our day and specifically in our country to stand against the long and sorrow-filled history of racism. Now, I want to be really clear. When I talk about systemic evil and specifically racism here, this is what I mean. It's a system that excludes and marginalizes people on the basis of race. Even though most individuals in the system are probably not intending or intentionally trying to do it. The individuals aren't intentionally trying to do it, but they're part of the system that is doing it. And therefore, there's guilt and there's systemic evil. It's a worldview that totally undermines the gospel of Jesus. And I want to give you a flavor of what that looks like. Then I want to read a letter that was written to the pastoral staff here at Crossroads by a woman named Rahem. That Rahem is a member of this church. She goes to our North Glen campus. She has sat on our directional team, our directional board that we call church council. She's a believer in Jesus. She was born in Ethiopia. She came to the States as a young girl. She became a citizen, and she's black. Now, for some of you, when you hear this letter as I read it, you're going to want to argue that there's going to be this tendency, particularly if you're white, to go, yeah, but, yeah, but. But as I read this letter, what I'm going to encourage you to do, what I'm going to ask you to do is just to simply listen. To simply listen to this raw letter because we know Rahem. We know her heart. We know that she loves this church. We know that she loves Jesus. And so as I read these words to you, I'm just going to ask that you listen. She writes these words. My dear white friends, I want to come to you with my raw feelings of pain, anguish, tears, and a heavy heart. I want you to feel and see my vulnerability. I plead with you to not disregard or diminish my sorrow. I'm grieving, my dear white friends. You were my white friends that welcomed me with open heart 
when you saw me at the office, the grocery store, library, school, park, church, movie theater, community center, gym, city hall, and restaurant. Even though I could not show you my vulnerability because I did not want you to think of me as timid or aggressive. I'm carrying years of pain caused by the implicit and explicit biases of discrimination. Unfortunately, to make you feel safe and comfortable, I made sure to stay in the imaginary box you created for me and continue to be an abiding citizen in the system and institution you chose for me. My dear white friends, you might say I was not there to create those systems and institutions to choke you literally and figuratively. But I ask, where were you when they chose to defund the education system so my neighborhood school was left without support while expecting to educate me? Where were you when they left my neighborhoods without grocery stores for miles and filled it with liquor and convenience stores? Where were you when they decided my neighborhood was not, uh, did not need parks, sidewalks, and streetlights that functioned? My dear white friends, I know you are health conscious, but did you know that I am stricken with a chronic illness which could have been prevented if I was able to access healthy food and medical care? Where were you when the police officer who swore to serve and protect all pulled me over and made me pray that I wouldn't die that day? My dear white friends, the education, health, justice, political, and economic systems have been putting their knees on my neck, only allowing me the breath needed for mere survival. But you chose silence. I beg you, my dear white friends, find it deep in your heart to understand my frustration if you see me cry, scream, and protest peacefully. Do you not agree that I should breathe the same air you breathe? Walk and drive on the streets without fear as you do? Would you not agree that I should receive a quality education and good health care? Why should I be denied the same opportunities and promotions you are afforded simply based on the amount of melanin in my skin? My dear white friends, hear me out. I have gifts and talents, passions and hopes and aspirations as do you. Do not disqualify me because of the color of my skin. I have great things to offer our nations. Our differences make us beautiful, strong and great. Please do not let adversity lead us to utter destruction. My dear white friends, your silence is blocking my breathing. You are privileged who must use your privilege for a good cause to unchain and unlock your friends like me who do not have the privilege. Sincerely, your black friend. An emotionally raw letter. And the question is, is, what is our response? What does it look like for a Christian to respond to that? What does it look like for a brother or sister in Christ who knows this person to come alongside her? Where do we start? Well, I can think of four or five things to do, but, but I just will give you one. I just want to leave you one that I think can make the biggest difference of all. There's a place in the Bible in James chapter 1, and James was the half-brother of Jesus. And he sits down and he writes the church in his letter in chapter 1, verse 9, these words. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. In other words, what James is saying is that the poor believer should take pride in his high standing with God, in his exaltation. And the person who is high or, or affluent, that they should take pride in their low position. That here's what I think this means. That if you are a Christian affluent person, that you should remember that you're a sinner, James says. That you should remember a sinner. That that's part of your story. That's one of the things that the Bible says that you are. 
And if you're a poor person and you become a Christian, that you should remember that you are a child of the king, that, that you should think of your high position. See, the gospel takes rich and privileged people and keeps them from getting their identity in their place in society. And it takes the, the low and the poor and the vulnerable and it takes those people and it keeps them from taking their identity out of the place that's been assigned them in society. That when we take the high person and bring them low and take the low person and bring them high, what you have is the gospel. And the gospel has the power to destroy the system. See, here's how it works. That if we're a Christian, then we know, we know that we are sinners saved by grace. And that very knowledge of the gospel should humble us so that when we talk about the injustices in this world, that we don't look at everyone else as the problem, but rather that we point the finger at us, realizing that we too are the problem, but that we are also the solution which we have the means to create. See, the gospel takes the pride out of all of us forever. That's what it does. And what it leaves you with is if people created in the image of God, like Rahem, are feeling this way, then the question that I have to ask is, how do I restore righteousness and do justice because her experience is neither? And when we come face to face with that moment, it causes us to examine our own hearts in prayer. That it causes us to, to lead into, into deep relationships with people of the other faith or of other races in order that we might hear their story, not because we have to, but because we want to. And as we hear their story, we don't bring judgment to the story, but we actually listen. That the only way that healing comes is not through political means of the left or the right, but through the gospel. That's the real way to healing. By doing justice and loving kindness, walking humbly, not proudly, but walking humbly with our God. See, when we start to realize and understand this, that we realize that this is us. When we think of doing justice and loving kindness, this is our duty. And part of what we've experienced in this world as we've sat back is that we've watched the world, and the world is trying to do justice. And as we walk through and watch this happen, we sit back frustrated because we know that what we're seeing is not justice. And yet we sit back and we complain and we judge and we point fingers. And the reality is, is that we're the ones who are called to do justice and to love kindness. And when we do, then I think we start to see what the church is to be all about. See, one of the things that I love about this church is, is the diversity in its generations. It's one of the things that makes me most proud to be a part of this church, that we have families who have four generations, four generations worshiping in this church, lifting the name of Jesus, coming together. And I have a dream that one day that this church will be as diverse ethnically as we are generationally, where we would start to see our churches reflect the communities that we're a part of, that we would start to see our church reflect what heaven will be like, and all of that begins when we take seriously this extraordinary calling on our life to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before our God. It's the calling that God places on all those who call upon his name. If you haven't called upon the name of Jesus, if you've never made that confession of faith, I would simply invite you to text Jesus to the number on the screen, 720-513-1933.
If you text that number and text Jesus, we would love to walk through with you what it means to find Jesus. Will you pray with me, Father? Lord, we stand before you. Lord, watching, Lord, the chaos of this world. Realizing that when we read the beginning pages of Genesis and see the mess that is humanity, uh, Lord, not much has changed. And yet, Lord, your call is extraordinary on our lives. Lord, that you call us to lives of righteousness, of, of restoring dignity with people. Lord, living in such a way that relationships are right. And Lord, you've made so clear what that righteousness looks like. That we're to do justice. That we're to love kindness and we're to walk humbly with you. And so, Lord, this prayer is short because we just need your help. We need the courage to do it. Lord, we need the faith to stand up. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us in those moments, that we would live and that we would be the church and that we would demonstrate your heart like Jesus demonstrated your heart. God, be with us. It's in the power of Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.